0: Welcome to Long Hill Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast, where you can listen to our latest sermons filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're in the car, on the couch, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Good morning, Long Hill Chapel. My name is Dan. Uh, I'm an international worker with the Christian Missionary Alliance. My family and I serve overseas in the Arab lands, uh, and we've had the blessing of calling Long Hill Chapel, our our home. We served here for a number of years before going overseas. And now this year on our home assignment, we've been blessed to be back with this community and even here sharing the word today. So thank you for this opportunity. And I hope that you enjoy looking at this scripture with me. I've had such a pleasure working with Pastor Michael uh, and the church over the past weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter five verse 21 through 26. And so as we begin, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the scriptures. Lord, you are so good to us. You are faithful. You are present, even here today. Lord, I thank you that your word stands the test of time, that it is true, that it is challenging. So I pray, Lord, today that you would... uh, That you would challenge our hearts, maybe in a new way. That you would bring to our minds new realizations. That you would help us to grow in the way that you see fit, Lord. If there are sin that needs confessing, I pray that you would help us to confess. If there are new attitudes that need to be taken a hold of, I pray that by your spirit we would receive them. And Lord, I pray that that whatever you desire to accomplish in this time would be done. We ask it in the name of the word made flesh our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, here at Long Hill Chapel, we've been going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus comes into his public ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, maybe you remember, one of the first things he says is, Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, you, maybe like me, are wondering, well, what, what on earth does that mean? The kingdom of God is at hand. Well, I think Jesus' early disciples wondered much the same thing. And so here in Matthew 5, we see he sits down the disciples and the crowds of people that were following, and he lays out his plan for what the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, Maybe some of you know when a a politician goes up for office, they put out their platform. These are the things that I will be doing when I'm elected into office. These are the things I'm passionate about, that I care about, etc., etc. In many ways, the Sermon on the Mount... Works like that platform speech. Jesus is saying to, this, to his disciples, This is what the kingdom is all about. This is what I am all about and what I want you to be about as well. And so we've looked over the last few weeks at different aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. In week one, we looked at the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are the people that do so and so or are like so and so. Happy are the people. And we looked about the idea that oftentimes people in our world are not so happy. And yet the people that Jesus says are going to be blessed, are going to be happy, are sometimes surprising characters, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not exactly the people that we would have expected to be blessed, to be happy. And then last, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the idea of being salt and light. Jesus challenges his believers to be different in the world there's a later scripture that says we're we're called to look like peculiar people but I like this analogy that we're to be salty to have a distinct flavor to give rich flavor and goodness to the area that we're around and we're to be light we're to cast out darkness wherever we go and so we as Christians salt and light in the earth I think well that's a great idea too Jesus blessed salt and light good what does it look like maybe and then Jesus says well one of the ways that we see this is through the fulfillment of the law and righteousness. And last week we looked at a difficult passage where Jesus talks about the Pharisees and the scribes of the law. And he combats maybe what they were saying a little bit. And he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And then he went on even to say... And those who follow me, those who want a place in the, in the kingdom of God, those who want to be a part of what I'm doing, their righteousness must even surpass that of the Pharisees and the keeper of the law. Now, if you were one of the early followers of Jesus, one of his disciples, that would be a really alarming sentence to hear. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. See, if you know much about the Pharisees, you know one thing that they were known for was being righteous. They had not only learned and memorized all of the Mosaic law, all of the laws of the Old Testament, they had actually put additional structures around the Mosaic law so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking one of the commandments. So we think of a commandment, maybe uh, do not, or keep the Sabbath holy. That's a common one that people knew. Um, The Pharisees would set up kind of extra rules around this don't uh, keep the sabbath holy they would not let you work in particular ways or walk a particular distance or do particular things on the sabbath just to kind of put this little buttress between the actual commandment and and where you stood just to make sure just to make sure that you are righteous and so then being asked to keep a righteousness that surpasses the pharisees well that would be a really challenging thought And I think maybe for the early followers of Jesus, it would be a little bit of a frustrating or disappointing sentiment, too. Uh, I think of when Jesus is saying this, let your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees or else you have no part in the kingdom of God. I think of kind of the air going out of the balloon in the early followers. They're going like, what? Because that's a really, really hard thing to think about. See, the early followers of Jesus, what were they there for, sitting on the mountain listening to him talk? What had they seen happen so far? Well, according to the scriptures thus far, what they'd seen was Jesus come out into public ministry. He was baptized, and then he went off into the desert. And then when he came back, he was healing people. He was delivering people from demonic possession, he was healing infirmities and sicknesses. At a wedding, he had turned water into wine. He had performed some miracles. Uh, There are people maybe had heard, right, that Jesus has the ability to multiply bread, to provide food to hungry masses. And so I would imagine that the early followers of Jesus, some of these crowds, were in it for what they might get out of it. They were following, thinking, maybe this will be an easier road. Maybe I don't have to follow all the rules of the Pharisees anymore. Maybe I can follow this Jesus, and I'll get some wine, and I'll get some bread, and if I'm sick, I'll get better, and I don't have to put on all these shackles and rules. And they're in, and then Jesus says something like this, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at six particular examples of ways in which Jesus explains what that righteousness looks like. He goes through a series of sayings, and they always kind of start the same way. that He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Today, we're going to be talking about murder. You have heard it said, do not murder. He also says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. You have heard it said, uh, anyone who advocates for a divorce must have a certificate. You've heard it said, don't break your oaths." You have heard it said, an eye for an eye. You have heard it said. But in each one of those instances, Jesus responds, but I say to you. And what he says to you, what he says to me, what he says to us, is a different ethic a different standard, a different expectation than what we've heard before. And it matters for us today, just like it mattered for the Pharisees years before, just like it mattered for the crowds that were listening, because what they say, what they've said in the Old Testament, what they've said as the Pharisees is very similar to what they say today. They say, don't murder. Okay, I wish that was the end of this passage because I could live by that standard. I think I could even uphold that standard with relative ease. Do not commit adultery. Don't cheat on your wife. That's pretty common parlance today. People know that. Oaths. Give your word and keep it. Okay, we can get on board with that. They still say that. But Jesus is still saying something more to us today. They say, I say, So let's read the scripture today and see what he has to say about murder. You have heard it said to the people long ago do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, but I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother, raka, the Aramaic word for you fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go. Be reconciled. And then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with adversaries who are taking you to the court. Do it while you're still on the way. Or else he may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. And then you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. They say, do not murder. I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. See, we can do the not murder, but I don't think Jesus quite understands. We're from New Jersey, and anger is kind of like part of our identity. I don't know. We were grown, brought up in it. We we, we thrive in it. The stress levels, the anger, the, the horn honking. Have you gone on Route 80, Route 78 in the morning? Anger is just like part of the deal. And if you don't believe me, or you don't have to have this commute, which, praise God in and of itself, if you don't, today, on your way home, or the next time you're out in your car, when you get to a red light, stop. Always a good idea. But when it turns green again, do something. Actually, do nothing. Don't drive. Keep your foot on the brake, wait, and count in your head. One, two, three, four, five. I will guarantee if there is another car around you, by the time you count to five, you will see the anger problem that exists in our communities. Whether it be the laying on of a horn, the lifting of a particular finger, some choice words perhaps. If you wait long enough, you'll even get a rat-tat-tat on your window with an angry scowl to follow. And it's just small infractions like this. Things that are really in the grand scheme of life, so minute, will cause this eruption of anger in people. And maybe it happens to you too. Maybe you're one of those people, I don't know, have you been on Facebook lately? It seems like on Facebook, no matter what gets posted, something political, something scientific, something educational, something even just communal, we'll get a couple likes and about a million angry faces. The algorithms in Facebook are actually designed to boost angry faces. If you put one of those angry faces, that will get more views across the system. Why? Because Facebook knows people are angry. And when someone shares something angry, it's more likely to excite and get people engaged when it gets other people angry, too. We have this kind of like visceral, immediate reaction, and it's being capitalized on by some of these countries or companies because people are angry. If you get really stressed out one day at work this week on your way home, uh, stop by and in Pompton Plains, and you can go to the rage room. I don't know if you've heard of what the rage room is. The rage room, you go and you pay $20, $30, whatever, and you can get an old TV and a room all to yourself and a baseball bat. And you can just smash and smash old laptops, old computers, lamps, whatever you want, shatter bottles, just to get that rage out. Because we are so mad. And it's just natural, right? Isn't that just the way life is? relating with other people, how it's supposed to be. It just seems like that's how everyone is. It seems like tempers are getting shorter and shorter, polarization getting stronger and stronger. But really, Jesus, anyone who is angry is subject to judgment. Anyone who calls someone a fool, subject to the fires of hell. I think I use worse language when the Mets pitching blows a save. And that's the standard he puts forward. Unless your righteousness surpasses that even of the Pharisees, you have no part in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus does something in these passages in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees were so good at putting on more externalities, more external rules to try and keep people buffered away from what the core was. And Jesus does the complete opposite. He says, no, do not murder. That's an externality. That's an external rule in and of itself. What is the issue is your heart. It's the anger, it's the rage, it's the fallenness that's deep inside of us, and that's what we need to rip out, that's what we need to root out, that's what we need to get rid of in order to truly be righteous. But Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's just impossible. Maybe we can't really get, get rid of that. It's I don't know. We'll see when I try and put my bed, my kids to bed tonight how long it takes before my temperature starts to rise up and my voice starts to get a little more angry. It just, it seems like it's just, it's just there. And so often through church history, because of that, when we think of these standards that Jesus puts forward, don't even be angry with your brother or sister. It's not only adultery, it's even looking lustfully at another person that is a problem. These standards, they just get so high. And so often Christians just say, this is just an ideal. Jesus is putting up the ideal state, the perfect state, maybe the heavenly state. Someday we'll get to that. Someday we'll be able to live up to that. When the kingdom really comes, when we are dead and up in heaven or when Jesus returns, then we'll live it out and it'll be so perfect. Until then, he's he's using this as hyperbole. To show us how fallen we are, how broken we are, how apart from him we are. And I think there's an aspect of truth to that. At least for me, when I consider my own heart and my own mind, my thoughts, my emotions, the way I respond. And I realize day in and day out my shortcomings, it does create a level of dependence and humility. A calling out to Christ. Saying, "Ah, I failed again. I need help again. I need your spirit again. I can't do this on my own. And it does point me back towards the cross that there was someone who came, who lived a perfect life, who sacrificed on our behalf, that we could be instilled with his righteousness. And I'm grateful for that. And there is so much truth to that aspect of the gospel story. But there is a lot more going on in this text. You see, Matthew. He writes in triads. A triad means that he writes and he kind of uses Jesus' teaching in sections of three. Throughout Matthew's gospel, it happens over 75 times that when Jesus tells a story or gives a lesson, it has three segments to it, three parts. And each one of these, they say, I say, is no different. The first part is what we would call maybe traditional righteousness. This is the idea where Jesus says, they have said unto you, and you've heard it said from old, do not commit Murder, or you'll be subject to judgment. This is the traditional righteousness, the way it's always been, the way it always will be, the way they know, everyone knows. But then there's a second part, and we'll call it maybe uh, the sin pattern. And it's the identification of the heart issue that we talked about. The issue isn't murder per se, it's the anger within us. I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother brother, is subject to judgment. Anybody who says raka or fool, subject to the Sanhedrin, the courts. And to the fires of hell. But then there's a third part, and the third part is the climax of the teaching. And each one of these, they say he says, they say, the climax is when Jesus gives a therefore or an actionable step. David Gushy calls it a transforming initiative, where we move from the idyllic ethic, do not be angry ever, to the practical. Ethic of this is what you must do, therefore. And what does Jesus have us do? Well, let's read it. Verse 23 Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar and you remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in the front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. If you're giving an offering, if you're at the altar, if you're here at church, first, before you do anything else. Go and be reconciled. That's the therefore. That's the practical ethic. That's the step. It's not that you're never gonna get angry. It's not that all your your, um, relationships are gonna be hunky-dory and that you're always gonna have a big smile on your face and that everything's gonna be perfect from now on because you're a Christian. It's not that it's gonna be easy. But it's that when your righteousness does have a shortcoming, when your relationships start to falter, when you see the cracks forming and the sinfulness rising up, the option that we have, the choice that we have, the command Christ gives us is first go be reconciled. Leave your offering and go be reconciled. But that's easier said than done. When the first audience would have heard this, they actually would have thought that the even the example of go be reconciled first is, is like logistically almost impossible, right? It, it's almost absurd to think about. So imagine for me, uh, with me for a minute, if you were living in ancient Israel and you had come down from the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem to make your offering, what goes into that trip? Well, I'll tell you, it takes a lot of preparation. You have to take off work, use up your vacation time. You've got to take your long, your family and take a long, long walk, taking about a week all the way to get to Jerusalem, finally. And you've brought with you the whole time your little lamb or your little goat, maybe some birds or doves, depending on your economic stature. And you're bringing them along, and they're going to be your offering at the temple. You're going to sacrifice it. You're going to give some of your money as well that you've earned. And this is going to be your offering. And you spent your whole year calendar, you're planning around this event. It happens at a particular time and a particular date. and It's important you have to be there. And you sacrifice so much so that you can get down to Jerusalem to get to the temple to make your offering. And then when you finally get there, you think, oh, you know, I'm so mad at my neighbor. They parked their donkey in front of my lawn all week. And to get back at them, you know, I cut their olive hedge a little too short. And now we're mad at each other. We're having this feud, whatever it is. And I, got, I got to get back there. I got to get back to Galilee before I can I can go through with this. So you take little Billy Goat and you tie him up at the front of the altar and you say, "See you in two weeks, I guess," and head on out back. It's almost like it's plainly absurd the idea that you would just leave everything that you're doing after all of the effort, all of the time, just to go be reconciled with one person before you can make a legitimate offering. But Jesus is saying that's just how important this is. It's so much more important than the sacrifice. It's so much more important than the finances. It's so much more important than the time in the worship service. It's so much more important than the songs that you sing. In fact, I would rather not have the songs. I would rather not have the offering. I would rather not have you here today in church if only you would first go and be reconciled. Because that relationship, that person, matters more than any of this stuff in the building, more than watching this stuff online. So are we going to do it? I told Pastor Michael that if he had me pass, uh, speak on this passage today, I was, going to, I was going to make the call to drop the offering to zero. Because I don't believe that any of us are exempt from this. I don't think any of us are without anger. I don't think any of us are without division in at least one of our relationships. And some of us know it right off the bat, who it is, what it is. Some of you really have a right to be angry. Maybe it's that spouse that you had given everything to, that had you committed to, that you trusted and they betrayed you. They just can't let that go. Maybe it's that child that you built into, that you raised, that you loved, that you cared for, and they just disregarded. They broke and went off their own way. Man, that hurts. You're mad about it and you're hurting about it. Maybe it's a parent. wasn't there for you the way that you needed them to be. Maybe it's a coworker. This week at work was just impossible and they're driving you nuts, or they got that promotion that you were supposed to get Maybe it's a friend that betrayed trust. And for all of them, it's just so much easier. Just Let's just break it off, at least for Sunday morning. We'll ignore the anger, we'll ignore the hurt, and we'll focus on God for a little while. We can get back to the bad relationships later. That would be so much easier to do. But Jesus says, no. Go first and be reconciled. Leave your offering here. That can wait but go and be reconciled. Maybe today you're not quite sure who that person you need to be reconciled with is. Maybe you don't have this deep, exploded, hurt, mangled relationship, right? Maybe you don't have a heavy grief. Anger so often comes from grief, but I guarantee you there's someone. There is someone that you need forgiveness forgiveness for, or there is someone you need to ask forgiveness from. I was in seminary and somebody told me once, Uh, about kind of a a discipline about prayer. Uh, I was talking to them and said, you know, sometimes it's hard. I'm praying and I'm praying and praying. I feel like I never hear the voice of God. I feel like I I don't hear kind of like that internal voice or audible voice for periods of time. And maybe you like me, maybe you've prayed and prayed and have like, man, I really wish I heard from God more. I feel like I'm just talking a lot or something. Uh, And and my friend told me, they said, I'll I'll give you one prayer that God will answer 100% of the time. Uh, And I can't make that quite maybe that same guarantee. But for me, he has answered it 100% of the time. Every time I pray it, he gives me an answer. And so if you want to hear God answer your prayers and you want to get practical on this sermon, the prayer is a simple one. Lord, who do I need to forgive? Lord, who do I need to forgive? Just pray that and wait. And I bet the Holy Spirit will bring someone to your heart. Bring someone to your mind and you will know. And your job, leave your offering at the altar. Go and be reconciled. See, Jesus later in the Sermon on the Mount, he has another strong word for us. In Matthew 6, 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people of their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. Sometimes we hold on to our anger. Sometimes we even find identity in our anger. That's how we define our relationships with certain people. Uh, But Jesus seems to say that that as we forgive, we'll be forgiven. And, And as we build up this anger, we will have more and more danger associated even with ourselves. First, right, you'll be subject to judgment, then to the Sanhedrin, to the people's court, and then after that, even to the fires of hell. But if we forgive, what what are the ramifications for this passage? Well, it seems like we won't be in danger necessarily of the courts. Settle matters quickly with your adversary while taking them to court. That way they won't hand you over to the judge. There's a practical uh, ramification of this. Sometimes it makes a difference in our tangible relationships, but more important, I think what is transformed when we offer forgiveness and when we receive forgiveness is we are transformed from people of anger into into peacemakers. And blessed are the peacemakers. Our relationship is transformed from a divided and divisive relationship into one of reconciliation, into one that is redeemed and reflecting of the love of God. And the other party, well, they turn from being an enemy into being a friend. And through our reconciliation and through our repentance, I think maybe they can even turn to being a friend of God. See, Christianity over the last number of years has gathered a reputation not for being particularly forgiving, not for being people that love to repent and to restore relationships, but really for being angry. We are known as Christians for being angry at all kinds of different groups that disagree with us, that think differently than us, that act differently than us, That look different from us. We cannot be a people of hate. We cannot be a people of anger. The result of that is the fires of hell. But we are called to be a people of peace, a people of reconciliation. And so for you today, whomever it is that God is putting on your heart, leave your offering here, leave your worship here. Leave the songs, leave the praise, leave the prayer, leave the money, and wait for another day. Today is the day where you need to go and be reconciled. And even when it's hard, and even when it means confessing our sin, and even when it means forgiving others theirs, there's a peace that will come, and there is a power that will come from the Holy Spirit that will allow us to do this. And then, and then, we can say we are members of a better kingdom, citizens of a new way, ambassadors for Christ. And when the hurt seems too high and the anger wells up too much, we must remember to look at Jesus Christ, the one who had every right to be angry, the one who had every right to be defiant, the one who was living perfectly and yet saw his world crumbling around him in sinfulness and mire and hatred. And yet what did he choose to do? He sat and he dined with sinners. And he went so far even to die on the cross that we might be reconciled to God. And so forth we go as reconcilers. Thanks for listening today. To connect with us further, you can visit our website at lhcnj.net or on social media at LHCNJ, and we'll be back next week with another sermon. Until then, have a great week and God bless.